track money thinny. Got me in my feelings. Gotta be real with it. Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, where we expand the conversation on the critical civil and human rights challenges of our day. I'm your host, Ashley Allison, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I have two of my best friends and great co-hosts here, Gabby C., political director of SEIU 1199 and the managing director of Color of Change, Arisha Hats. What's up, ladies? Hello. So this is our segment, Pod Squad, where we just digest all the hot topics that are happening in today's culture, country, and that people care about. So let's just jump right into it. We just finished a hot election of 2018, electing historical numbers of women, people of color, LGBTQ candidates. And I don't know if anyone's been paying attention, but we do have a presidential election, which feels like it might be in a week based on how much people are talking about it. But it is actually over a year from now in 2020. We have a very, very crowded field for the Democrats. We have Trump, who current president most likely will be seeking re-election, whether you want him to or not. So we all want to have a conversation today about what is going to happen in 2020, how we get young people, how we get people of color and Engage. You all do this work every single day. What's your immediate take on what's happening in the field for 2020 right now? Let's start with Gabby C., political director of SEIU 1199. A lot is happening <laughs> right now in the field. I mean, I think that I'm a strong believer in primaries in general. So I think that having a lot of folks jump into the race right now is not a bad thing. I love the diversity of all these 2020 candidates. I love all of their experiences. I feel like Democratic primary voters really have an array of candidates to choose from. It isn't hard to be like, oh, I like this person. Like, I remember in 2008, like, I love Barack Obama. I love Hillary Clinton. And you're kind of like, eh, maybe I don't know which one. Here, like, there is a wide variety. You, you can, got you A, can, B, C, D, you can E, find F, your G, fla- H, I, J, K, You can find your flavors, whoever you want to be, whoever you want to support, whatever your issues are. So I love that. Arisha, what's your take on what's going on? It feels like it's starting early. Like, I feel like it's just going to be a long election season. Long. And who knows where it'll end up. But I think it is exciting that there are choices to be made. And yeah, I just feel like I have no idea what's going to happen. I worry that it might be like so brutal that, you know, after the primary is over, a more progressive candidate won't actually win and that we'll be Mm. stuck with Trump for another four years. Man, that will be really hard to endure. I've been saying like I'm going to just move to an island Go mm-hmm. move in the mountains and raise some goats if that happens. I feel but. like you want to do that if Trump is president or not. That's though. true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me ask you this: Some people say people turn out to vote because of issues. Some people say people turn out to vote because of the candidates. What do you think is the most pressing issue for people like us, women of color, young people, millennials? What will get them to show up at the polls through the primary season and then in the general? Arisha? I mean, more and more, I think it's like economics fundamentally. What do you mean by that? Can How, I get paid? Not necessarily can I get paid, but can I survive? Can my family survive? Yeah. Do we believe that candidates or government can actually help us like thrive better? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's like a lot of reasons to feel like it can. It, it, it won't matter who's elected. Yeah. But I think fundamentally it sort of like comes back to economics. And having someone after going through the Obama presidency, it was really nice to be able to see your 
herself yeah. um, in the first family. And so I do think that there are a lot of people that vote on, does this person share my values? Is this someone that I think when they're like making a decision at the midnight hour? Will they think of me? Yeah. Will they think of me? Will they think like me? Yeah. That sort of thing. Gabby, what's your take? I mean, I really think people don't go to the voting booth and say, which candidate holds my values? Which candidates are right on my issues? I think most people go to the voting booth and they make a very personal choice on a candidate that appeals to them at a fundamental level. So there are some folks that start with issues and then they follow, but I think the vast majority of Americans and people that go out to vote, vote for the person that they feel most connected to. And I think that's why we have a President Trump, not because of his issues, obviously, not because he's the smartest person with like the best prescription to fix what's wrong with him. America, people just felt connected to him, perhaps because he's been a reality TV show for my entire life, it seems like, or he's always been regarded as like this uber successful, uber smart businessman that everyone could look up to. And so when people were voting for Donald Trump, I imagine a lot of folks just voted for him because they felt connected to him. Yeah. Not even connected to the things that he's talking about. I also think we've seen over the last couple of cycles, I think people are voting for change. For sure. Pretty regularly, like on both sides of the aisle. And I mean, so- hope and change was Obama's thing, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think there were a lot of people that went in, even not necessarily Democrats, went in thinking like, oh, this is something that will like disrupt or shake up our system. Yeah. And I just think maybe we've like reached a consensus. Well, let me ask you this. So I know you might not think people really are going in to vote for their issues, but there are some things on the table right yeah. now. Like who thought reparations was actually going to be <laughs> the thing that people, I mean, I'm like, okay. And then I will say, you know, sister got a lot of degrees and a lot of student debt. And so I did see Elizabeth Warren's, I don't know the details of it, but when it said cancel all student debt, I was like, sign me up, yeah, you know? Yeah. So there are issues out there that people are really voting on. If you had to give, you don't have to pick the candidate. And again, we're not endorsing anyone or any particular issue. I love the idea of the legalization of marijuana some people are promoting. Some people are saying like the people who have criminal convictions for selling drugs should be the first ones to actually get the chance to go into the business of legalized marijuana, which right now they're restricted from. Mm -hmm. But if you had to give the 50,000 candidates right now that are actually in the race on the Democratic side, it's not 50,000, but it's about 40 at this point and maybe 20 that are viable. What would be that one piece of advice that you would give those candidates? Let's start with Gabby C., who is the political director of 1199 at SEIU. It's really hard to think of one thing because I think there are so many. And I also think that sometimes presidential candidates ask somebody that they really trust this question and then they just do that thing over and over and over. I mean, I think the biggest thing that folks are looking for is authenticity. They want to know who you are and what you're about and be able to talk about issues in a really concrete way, I think. Recently, we've seen Elizabeth Warren come out with all kinds of proposals around the mortality rate, specifically for black women, around forgiving student loans. And these are like really meaty, substantive issues that she's talking about and presenting real solutions. And I think the extent to which you need to say what you mean and then back it up is real and it makes you a more credible candidate. And not everyone is doing that quite yet. Not everyone is talking about policies in a very specific way. Arisha, let's go to you. You're the managing director of Color of Change that really focuses on engaging black people, young black people particularly. What is that piece of advice that you would give to these candidates right now? I think 
Gabby hit the nail on the head in terms of authenticity is really important. Like, I think now that we've had a reality television president for almost four years, you know, people should feel free to be themselves. And I agree, like having a plan and being able to like articulate that plan, I think is incredibly important because even if a Democrat takes back the White House, there's still questions about where the Senate will be. There's questions about where the House will be. And so right now, I think, yeah, I'm looking for someone that has actually thought through their agenda and what they're going to do. I don't want to hear a hundred promises. I would love to hear like three substantive, solid, like I've thought about this. I really thought about Medicare for all. And this yeah. is how it's actually going to happen, because like we've been through a healthcare debate mm-hmm. before and changes to that system. So I think that's really important. I think for the people that I engage on a daily basis, you know, color of change is focused on improving the lives of black people. And we believe that through improving the lives of black people, lots of working class folks are impacted for the better. For decades, we've had candidates afraid to take pictures with black people, afraid to show up in black communities. And so I do want someone that's going to speak directly to black people or speak directly to me as a woman and how like the policies and proposals that they're going to be pushing for in the world actually impact me. So let me talk a little bit about this. We've had our first black president and, you know, people declared racism was over. Mm -hmm. Not. There is this conversation right now. We have a very diverse field. We have a black woman running. We have about four or five women running. We have white men running. We have Latino men running. Can we talk about identity politics right now? Because there is this thing, you know, after the 2016 election, people were like, I'm from Ohio. Gabby's from Ohio. We met on the campaign trail. Dang, like 2011. That's like seven years ago. (laughs) I didn't realize I aged that quickly. After the 2016 election, when Hillary lost, quite honestly, in some of those battleground states by, you know, 40,000 votes. But the conversation was like, we need to forget about our base and our base are young people. Our base are people of color. Our base are people like us. And we need to talk to the middle class white dude who voted for Obama and now voted for Trump. What do you say to someone like that? It makes me want to pull my freaking hair out because I'm like, just because your base didn't show up in one election cycle doesn't mean you forget about them. What do you say to people like that, I mean, that, first of all, I think that's a false choice because there are so many people like, do you talk to working class white people or do you rely upon people of color and women and young people, which are the base of the Democratic Party? And the answer is you have to do both. Right. Like, that's like my rub a little bit of like, what's the one thing a president should do? There are many things that you have to be able to do and do well. You know, you have to be able to turn out a base and talk to young people and black people and women and white working class voters and suburban women voters. But isn't it the narrative that like they don't care about the same thing? But I think that's everybody cares. True. It's not I true, don't though, think right? That's true. Like if, people care about healthcare. People, people care about care education. About all this, you know what? One of my personal crusades right now is to redefine what working class means. Because when we say working class, we usually think of like the steel worker in Youngstown, Ohio, my or hometown. the mine worker, <laughs> or the auto worker in Toledo, Ohio, my hometown. But really and truly, like my union is a healthcare union, represent about half a million people from Florida to New York. And these are all healthcare workers, and they're majority people of color. They're majority women. And this is the working class. We're not talking about. And folks they're starting in to skew younger, right? Millennials are the largest part of the workforce right now. And that's especially true in healthcare because the fields that are growing are fields in long term care, people that are home health aides and taking care of baby boomers as they retire and older folks. 
And so this is the working class that we're talking right. about. And we have to expand what it means to be working class because most Americans are working class and the working class is diverse. And you know what we all care about? What's that? Having a good job that allows us to live good lives. We do not live to work. We work to live. And if we don't really consider this is the one thing you got me on a tangent now around minimum wage. You know, there's all this conversation around raising the minimum wage to $15. Great. We should do that. But then the opposition might say, well, you know. $15 and then they'll, they don't have enough education and they're working all these hours and then they still don't make enough money. What people forget about the minimum wage is like a person shouldn't have to work. And many of our workers in our union, they have three or four jobs. Doing that is not the American dream. And so when we are talking about... You don't get to spend time with your family. You have no life. The quality That's of not, life. The Orange Man in the White House often talks about how the <laughs> unemployment is at the lowest rates it has been in like forever. That's partially true, but that's partially because and mostly because these are low-wage jobs. That is not a great thing. I'm on a tangent. I'm okay, going to Alicia, what do you think? Because I want to actually pivot to something else, but what would you say to those folks who say, after the 2016 election, let's talk to the middle class folks and forget your base. You know, we've become so brilliant on the left at elections. You know, and we, <laughs> we know exactly like we have an algorithm of exactly who to talk to. It's The algorithm is clearly working like, like a Facebook it, algorithm. Yeah, yeah incredibly <laughs> well. And so we get into these. I think it's this like data minded sort of focus where. Let's not talk to everyone. Let's talk to a few specific people. And I think that's really hurting us. So like, yeah, we spent years talking about white working class voters in a specific place like Ohio or, you know, in other places. But, you know, how are black Republicans feeling right now? Like, should we be talking to them? Or Latino Republicans. How are Latino Republicans feeling right now? Should we be talking? How about black non-voters, folks that like came out and voted for Obama and never came back to vote again? A study just came out recently that youth turnout was up to 31 percent in 2018 which is a midterm election, which is usually when voters do not turn out. Mm -hmm. I mean, young people are showing up. I do want to just pivot a little bit. We've been talking a little bit about the change. In the last couple of days and weeks, we've seen something happen with this figure in the political sector that so many people have been afraid of, which is the dun-dun-dun NRA. You know, it looks like the leadership is starting to crumble with... Um, one can only hope. What One can only hope. And there's this fear in politics of the NRA. And I want to get a sense of like... Why that fear actually exists, what is the root of that fear when you really start to dig under it might not be all that we think. And then who should candidates fear on the left? Let's start with you, Gabby. On the former question, I think that the NRA is not an organization that supports gun rights per se. It's an organization that supports white supremacy at a very fundamental level. And it's demonstrated by the number of black folks that were carrying firearms they had legally. And they didn't um, come to the rescue. Right. Mm -hmm. And they didn't come from a rescue. And so I think when we think about the power of the NRA, it is because people are terribly afraid of people of color taking over our country. And they feel like the only way to stop them is to be armed. And so I think that the fear of the NRA comes because white people in particular, some white people are terribly scared of a country that doesn't look like them. And their NRA has been the best vehicle for them to be able to express that fear. We say it's guns. We say it's the Second Amendment rights. I don't think that's the fundamental thing that people are gearing up for. I think people are just 
scared of change. And that's why we've seen a rise in gun sales. And that's also why we don't really have an NRA on the left. I used to say that Planned Parenthood, I think, is the most sophisticatedly organized, sophisticatedly, that's a word I'm making up and I'm just okay. going to go with we it. We do that at Pop for the Guns. Um, so go with it. Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> but, you know, it's an organization on the left that people really seek their endorsement. Like, that's a real thing. But that hasn't resulted in, like, the political change that you see in the RNRA. Like, we cannot do anything about guns in America, period, point blank, no matter what happens. Like, the worst has already happened. I don't know what else can happen, and we still can't change it. That's not true for reproductive rights or healthcare whatsoever. Yeah. I think the NRA has been able to sustain its power because, when they're giving a lot of money to candidates and elected officials to, like, say the line. And I agree that there's a lot of white supremacy behind, especially the actions of the NRA, like the organization. There's also this thread of just distrust of government. Lots of people on the left and the right, lots of black people can identify like not trusting government enough to like hand over and their especially weapons. especially immigrant communities right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's white supremacy. And then I think it's also like beyond that. People fundamentally want to feel safe. And that's because like distrust of government is such a part of the American ethos. Mm-hmm. Like the founding fathers, if mm-hmm. you will, were very explicit about a government not having too much control because mm-hmm. that's what they were fighting, mm-hmm. that type of tyranny. And so it's really hard to divest ourselves of something that has been so fundamentally, quote unquote, American since America was a thing, this fierce independence and fierce mistrust of government and government acting on behalf of the interests of its people. Everybody, you're listening to Pod for the Cause. I'm here with my girl, Arisha Hatch, Managing Director of Color of Change, and Gabby C., Political Director for 1199 SEIU. I want to ask this question. 2020 elections are coming up. We actually have some elections in 2019, but Mm -hmm. the big one that everyone's paying attention to is 2020. What is the change that you think young people and Americans in general are going to look for? Arisha? I think it's connected to student debt and jobs. Amen. Student Um, debt, y'all, because it's real. Yeah. I mean, everybody charged a lot of money to get through college, and now there are, like, less jobs that don't pay as well. People are struggling to buy homes and afford the cost of living. Mm -hmm. And so I think people want, especially young people, a sense of hopefulness. Like, we actually want to get to experience the American dream. Like, we haven't had that opportunity of being actually able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to be able to outperform our parents and earlier generations. So I think that's incredibly important. I also think with younger folks, like we've grown up in the information age, we've grown up in much more inclusive environments. We have friends that are more diverse than our parents' generation also had. And so I think folks want to see like a baseline of respect for different types of people, whether they be LGBT or Latino or black, or at least the the young people that I like hang around with or that I like. Um, (laughs) I think we want to see folks talking specifically, explicitly to us, to our issues and to our concerns. Abby, I'll let you get the last word here. What do you think is the change that people want to see and that they'll actually go and vote for in 2020? People want real tangible results. It's hard to do in a presidential level. Like anything Mm -hmm. that that president does takes years, sometimes decades for us to see the effects of it. But I think Arisha is right. People just want to be seen and heard and respected. And that is so much more important for folks and millennials in particular, the most diverse generation, the most tolerant generation. And if you are talking about taking away rights from people, if you're talking about a status quo, if you're not demonstrating your ability to fight for everyone, I don't think people are having anything of it, whether you are a millennial that's more progressive or more conservative or just like we're a generation that lived through school 
school shootings and we've seen nothing happen. We're a generation that lived through wars that had no real consequence, no real win. We all know folks that have fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. And unlike our parents' and generation, and unlike Vietnam or even our grandparents in World War II where they were fighting for like a larger good, we've seen because of the war in Iraq, the rise of ISIS and other types. And so we've experienced that so acutely. We just want results and somebody that is going to do and turn out for us and for our interest in a real way. We've also like uniquely experienced like corporations sort of yep. like rising, becoming Absolutely. more globalized, taking more advantage. And so we were like, you were asking the question earlier, like what is the left version of the NRA? I'm not quite sure there is one, but I do know that across both party lines, corporations are the folks that have control over our elected officials right now. Yeah. And that's for a variety of yeah. systemic reasons. Uh, you know, rich people have set themselves up well to do yeah. well with like key decision makers. But I do think on the left with a presidential candidate should be afraid. I feel like if they can't win over black voters, if they can't show that they can win over women, it's going to be a problem because I think, you know, we saw it in the last presidential election cycle, the discussion about whether saying black lives matter or all lives matter became like sort of this, Mm -hmm. you know, how are you going to respond to that question? I think there'll be other things like reparations, um, immigration reform, immigration reform, criminal justice reform that like candidates better get right. We're in the middle of Me Too. We're post the Women's March. And so a lot of our behaviors, attitudes towards women, the culture towards women, I think is also going to be a very important conversation in that Democratic candidates have to get right if they're going to be able to show themselves as different than Trump. Thanks again to Arisha Hatch from Color of Change and Gabby C. from 1199 SEIU. Coming up on Pod for the Cause, we are talking civic engagement, so don't go anywhere. to pod for the cause listen i have one of the best organizers in the game on the show today i jim poo who is the director of the national domestic workers alliance co-director of caring across generations and the co-founder of supermajority welcome to the show i jen thanks ashley so fun to be on So listen, we've been talking this whole episode about civic engagement. We know we have a big presidential coming up and you just launched with some of your other co-founders an effort called Super Majority. Can you talk to our listeners about why you started this effort and what you hope to accomplish? Super Majority is a new home for women's activism. We have this amazing group of organizers who have decades, probably hundreds of years of organizing experience under our belts. And we looked around, we've been watching women's activism just on the rise all over the country between marching and voting and running for office and advocating, protesting, doing all the things required to make progress in this country. I think it's just been incredible to watch. And so we decided to kind of go deeper and see what was going on with women. And we went around the country and did listening sessions with women from Ohio to Alabama, and just hearing what they're seeing, what they need, what they want, and what's important to them. And what we found was that women were already incredibly active in their communities, and they wanted to do more. They wanted to connect. 
They wanted to be able to actually solve problems, not just resist, but start moving towards solutions and get engaged in advocacy. And so the idea behind Supermajority is to create a home for women to be able to do all of those things and do it together. That is amazing. Now, you just said you had over 100 years of experience. We're talking about Cecile Richards, who used to lead up Planned Parenthood, and Alicia Garza, Jessica Morales. These are folks who are doing the damn thing, basically, and organizing. How do you get a group of women like that together to launch Supermajority? You know what's amazing about women is that we have always worked collaboratively and A lot of our organizations are already constantly figuring out how we connect and align and work together. And many of our organizations had already been a part of the Women's March together. We had been organizing around the elections together and really getting the women's vote out in 2018. So we were already in motion together in many, many ways. And I think what we wanted was to make sure that in this historic moment of women's activism, that we are able to really, a lot of people talk about what it looks like to be more than the sum of our parts. And we just recognize that women are by far the majority of everything. And then looking at the elections, more than 54% of the electorate, if we actually harnessed our power together, nothing would be impossible. And that's, I think, why we were like, you know what? It may not work, but we've got to try. We have to try. <laughs> you guys are like the destiny's child of organizing. It's like <laughs> it's just like the powerhouse crew. In 2016, when the poll results came back, we saw that particularly white women, about 53% of them supported Trump. Do you think there's a pathway to reach that population of the community through supermajority? I do. I think that obviously women are not a monolith. And even within Asian women, Asian American women voters, for example, we're not a monolith. So just even thinking about how we break down different constituencies of women in ways that allow us to actually understand what their priorities are. I think the operating theory here is that the values that supermajority is about promoting, which have to do with equality and equity and dignity and the ability to support your families and actually offer every generation a better life, like these values are majoritarian values and they're not left, right, Republican, Democrat, they're actually majoritarian values. So if we start from that premise, I think that we have a path to reach a lot of women. And I think the 2018 elections also had some really interesting results in that we saw rural women swing towards Democrats by 17 points. So I think that there's, when you start to break down what is happening among women in a more nuanced way, you start to see lots of opportunity. Now, you all just finished an organizing call this past week. And how many people, it was all on my Twitter feed when you launched, when the organizing call, like, how many women did you get on this call in just a matter of weeks? Thousands and thousands of women are signing up. So what's amazing is in the first week after the launch, 80,000 women joined Supermajority. 80,000? 
80,000 women joined as members, including more than 50,000 who filled out a really in-depth form about all the issues they care about and what they want to work on and what their experiences are in all 50 states. How do you reach 80,000 women? You know, like, I know y'all are great organizers, but how do you do something like that? I think it was a combination of media, social media, word of mouth, and networks. I mean, women are already networked. And between the group of us who launched Supermajority, we each have networks, like the domestic workers network is vast and all over the country. Um, The Pantsuit Nation team, that's already a community of three and a half million women. The Planned Parenthood community, the Movement for Black Lives, I mean, there's just so many networks where women are active and activated, and I think they were all engaged with us, which is really, really exciting. That's amazing. So we had 80,000 people sign up in the first week and thousands of women signed up for member orientation calls. So the call that I did last Friday, more than 1,400 women were on the phone for more than half an hour. I mean, I've never done a call that big. It was (laughs) so exciting. Uh, But it just goes to show that there really is an appetite and a hunger for this. What were you telling them? So it's my Friday, right? People are busy. People have a lot of things to do. And reality is like, we're still in 2019. We're not even in 2020. And you get 1,400 women on the phone. What do you say to them to make them come back? Well, we talked about what's coming up and the fact that we're going to be looking to hear from them about their priorities this summer and putting together an agenda, a women's new deal, so to speak. On the calls, we even did some polling of the people on the call about what kinds of resources they're interested in and also what kind of issues they want to work on. So it was about getting feedback and getting input, which I know a lot of women want to be able to provide, which is great. And then it's about giving people a sense of how they can really help build the organization and get more involved. You know, the thing that's most amazing about everything that you're saying is that you're listening to the people. You're saying, give us your feedback, give us your input, build this with us. And a lot of times, you know, in the movement and in organizations, it comes from the top down. And, you know, it's kind of like your parents telling you to do something. And when you're a kid, you don't want to listen to them. So why would you think it would be different when you're an adult? So it's amazing that you are really centering this work on the people that are joining this effort day by day. I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned the National Domestic Workers Alliance, the Movement for Black Lives, Planned Parenthood, all these organizations that were coming together and to form this collaborative, this effort called Supermajority. You know, some people would say, oh, we had the Women's March, so why do we need a Supermajority? But it seems like you guys are all in it together. Can you talk a little bit about how you build the power by bringing everyone together instead of trying to be so siloed? Well, I think that everybody has a real appetite for moving away from the scarcity type of model of organization and movement building. There's so much hunger and energy. I mean, what we have right now in this country, it's not a resource challenge. It's not a challenge in terms of courage. There's no lack of courage, no lack of ambition, no lack of hunger to do the work. What we have is an organizing challenge. And to really meet that challenge is going to require all of us. When women are 54% of the electorate and the majority of everything, 
the majority of college graduates, the majority of the workforce, the majority, right? It means that there's just a lot of people out there to organize. So even if all of us were at the top of our game, we still might not be able to meet the challenge. And so I think that we're all recognizing that there's work to be done and a huge opportunity to do it together in a way that allows us to really organize at scale in a different way. I mean, we are so much more powerful together. And I know it sounds rhetorical, but the truth is, is that there's so many different communities and constituencies of women to organize, and it's going to take all of us to do it. People are suffering day to day. You know, people are figuring out how to pay for health care, how to pay for their education, how they're going to get to work, if they even have a job. And so to think that one group can solve all of it or that, you know, there's one entry point is a flawed premise. And so I really love the fact that you all are doing this and together, you know, the leadership conference is a coalition in and of itself. And so our whole identity is that we are stronger together than we are separate. That was what our founding is. So if you were to fast forward to the day after the election, what do you hope the headline is about supermajority? That women transformed the political landscape in the United States and made the priorities of women national priorities that gave whoever became elected up and down the ballot, not just at the top of the ticket, but all of the candidates who were elected in the elections, a mandate for governing that is about representing, fully representing the interests and the hopes and aspirations of women. I'm in it. Count me in the 80,000. I'm in it to win it. You guys are doing amazing work. So if somebody wants to get involved with Supermajority, what do they do? They go to our website, supermajority.com, and they can also sign up for member orientation calls. And if you sign up as a member, you will get emails about what you can do to get more involved and how to help. But really, What we are trying to do is organize. So we would love for everybody to help spread the word and encourage others to sign up. And do you think people are going to like start having little meetings in their homes, like house parties or meeting at local town? Or is that still in the beginning stages of planning all that? I sure hope so. I mean, one of the things we're going to create is a survey tool so that lots and lots of women, thousands of women can help us get feedback on what should be in the agenda. And so we're hoping that people will gather for those, have house parties and dinners and playdates and whatever else to be able to hear from as many women as possible on what should be the priorities. And then do you just have a sense yet, based on some of your initial polling, like what are the most important issues that women are starting to talk about? Issues like child care and elder care are huge for women who are still more than 80 percent of family caregivers in this country. Issues having to do with pay equity and wages. I mean, women are still two-thirds of all minimum wage workers, so disproportionately working incredibly hard and still living in poverty. And then there's like everything from mass incarceration and the struggles for women who are incarcerated to climate change and issues having to do with a planet being there for our future generations. Um, And so there's all kinds, I mean, women are whole human beings with such expansive goals and aspirations for themselves and their families. So everything is coming up in a way that's really exciting. 
yeah, we are complex creatures and we're not one dimensional voters. And for all the candidates from city dog catcher all the way up to running for president of the United States, if you think we are one dimensional, you're going to lose. You're not going to speak to our whole selves. So right before we close out, I just want to ask you one question. I know that you're not doing this to elect a specific person. You're doing this to mobilize women. And if we mobilize women, we will elect someone who actually speaks to our values. If you could say one thing to these upcoming, these candidates that are running for office right now, particularly for the president of the United States in 2020, what's the thing you want them to know and they should start paying attention to and doing? That women and women's organizing is the single most powerful force for change in this country. And they have a huge opportunity to tap into that power in order to bring this country and our democracy into the 21st century from a place of strength. And to listen to women's priorities is to actually create a pathway to a healthier, more prosperous future for everyone. All right, y'all, you heard it directly from the co-founder of Supermajority, iGem Poo. I am so happy that we got to talk to you today. This effort is so exciting. Count me in the number. Let me tell you, the women are coming for you. So you better listen. You better be ready because the future is female. Coming up, I'll hit you with some real talk during our hot take where I get a few things off my chest in three minutes or less. back to pod for the cause we've been talking about civic engagement today and between our pod squad and iGen I have a couple things I need to tell you fast forward it's November 4th 2020 and honestly I'm a little hungover in the aftermath of what was a long night for the most important election in my life but luckily unlike 2016 the feeling of having one too many glasses of red wine is from celebration that Trump is no longer going to be president. He lost! Despite every effort to suppress voters in predominantly black and brown communities, we saw record turnout with young people, Latinx folks, and black people, with especially black women leading the way. Hashtag trust black women. Now, middle-class white voters, yeah, they spit 50-50, and that includes white women that still support Trump by about 50%. But at least we got 3% of them back, you know? Despite all of this, Trump is out. Now, I'm walking through the airport to get back to D.C. because I spent some time knocking doors in my home state of Ohio for GOTV. And listen, the pundits' heads are spinning. Fox is claiming voter fraud, even though we all know it doesn't exist. CNN has a million smart boards up to show how all the electoral maps came together. And MSNBC, they have a bunch of folks on there explaining how the secret sauce of victory is made. Look, I'm just relieved that this country has said no to white supremacy, no to homophobia, Islamophobia, misogyny and corruption. But who is this mystery person that beat Trump? Who spoke to the people and that despite their race, their gender, their age, or sexual identity, they were the antidote to Trump? Oh, wait, y'all thought I was a fortune teller? Nah, I don't know the name of the president-elect, but I do know what they stood for. I know how they showed up, 
and what they were able to build. So look, if you're a 2020 hopeful that believes in civil and human rights, here's my top five things to do to win. Number one, be authentic. People are sick of politics and they're worn out by the talking points from four, eight, 12 years of election cycles ago. They don't work, so stop using them. Number two, poor people matter. Yes, we believe in the working class and the middle class, but people are also poor in this country and poverty is a real thing. We can't be willing to talk about folks that are making the most money in this country while in the same breath ignore the people who make the least. Present solutions that focus on the least of these. Number three, the robots are here. Artificial intelligence and automation and tech is here. And if you think you can fight that wave, you need to drop out the race right now. These things add perks to our lives, but only when used responsibly. You need to be able to talk about the future of work and the jobs that they're going to take from everyone. You also need to be able to address racist algorithms that hurt people of color. Oh, and while you're at it, how about you protect my privacy, please? Thanks. Number four, don't rely on anything too much. Data is important. Polls are important. Ads are important. The media is important. And yes, Twitter does matter, but not one without the other. Don't bank your whole campaign strategy on any of these things alone or even all combined. Talk to real people over and over and over. Speak to their true experience and they will show up for you. Number five, speak to your base. People who believe in civil and human rights, a.k.a. progressives and social justice and racial justice advocates, are people of color, immigrants, young people, women of color. If you write policies that are focused on these communities, everybody wins. So don't be afraid to speak to them. Now, the road to 2020 is long and it ain't paved in gold. Also, Trump could still win re-election. But if we follow these five basic things, and we start the work now, we might just have a shot. This girl is on fire. This girl is on fire. She's walking on fire. This girl is Thank you for listening to Pod for the Cause. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with me, hit me up at Pod for the Cause on all social platforms. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Ashley Allison. And remember, a cause is nothing without the people. Now